All right, well, good morning to you all. Glad you're here. Let's start with a word of prayer. Father God, we uh, just ask that as we open your scriptures that uh, we would find in there some truth for our lives, that you would challenge us, that you would meet us in the reading of scripture and in the study together, Lord, that you would make it clear and uh, that we would have something today that we take with us from this place, God, that um, becomes a part of who we are, that challenges us and that leads us in righteousness throughout the day. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so today we're going to start a li- kind of a different section of First Samuel. So up to now, the story, for the most part, with the exception of a few uh, chapters about kind of the travels of the ark, the story has followed Samuel's life. And now the, we've got a new character who's going to be introduced, and that's Saul. And Saul's going to become really the protagonist and the main person who the story is following for a pretty good chunk of Samuel's writings of First and Second Samuel. Um, actually, probably wasn't written by Samuel, but the book of the books of Samuel, most of them are consumed with following the life of Saul, and then it moves over to David, who's the one that uh, comes after him. But today, we're going to start with kind of the storyline of uh, King Saul. So let's go ahead and jump in First uh, Samuel chapter 9, starting in verse 1. It says, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becherath, son of Ephiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. And we'll come back to what that means and what it doesn't mean in a moment here. Um... So first of all, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. So this might remind you, does it remind you guys of anything that we've seen in the book up to now? Anybody remember way in the way back machine, all the way back to the very first verse of the book of 1 Samuel, we were introduced to a man named Elkanah, who was the father of Samuel. Right, And so this is a very similar introduction, and it's kind of a a mark to tell us in the text that we're moving again from the stories about Samuel to stories that are more focused on Saul. And you see, it's really interesting, because we probably wouldn't think to start telling a story, if we were telling a story about one of our heroes, or kind of one of the stories of, I don't know, say American history, we wouldn't start by describing George Washington's father. Right? We don't even know who George Washington's father is, unless some of you are you know, history buffs. Maybe you do. You know? Or we, we wouldn't go back and describe who was the dad of the person that we're going to be talking about in the story. But for the Hebrew mindset, that's very important because it tells you about where they came from. And the, uh, the history, the heritage of people was much more of a value in that culture than it is in our culture. And that's why you get not only the name of Saul's father, Kish, but you also get... Uh, several generations of the people who came before. Um, And to us, these names don't mean anything. To the people reading them, they may not even have meant anything. But what it tells you is that there's there's a history there, that these names, if you go back generations and generations, you're actually tracking back in the history of the Bible up to a certain point, to the point where it's it's probable that at least... um, 
maybe his great-grandfather was one of the people who was at the, uh, you, you remember the story in Judges where they have kind of the raid where they kidnap all of these women to be the, the wives of the Benjaminite clan because there weren't enough women in their tribe. And so it's possible that these people are, are people who actually were there for these significant moments in Israel's history. So he's setting the stage here. He's talking about who are all these people. We don't necessarily know who they are, but what we do get the detail is that they're from the tribe of Benjamin. And Benjamin was one of the was was the youngest son of Jacob, the the patriarch of Israel. So Jacob, whose name became Israel, God changed his name to Israel. Uh, Benjamin was his youngest son, and so Benjamin becomes uh, one of the tribes of Israel as they you know through the generations that descend from this patriarch Benjamin, and uh, and and Saul is from that tribe of Benjamin. And it's noted here that Kish is a man of wealth. Interesting, though, that the same is never said of Saul, so keep that in mind. His, his dad is wealthy, his father has wealth, and he probably benefits from that, but Saul has never mentioned himself to be wealthy before he becomes King Saul, and then, you know, obviously he's going to become wealthy through that. And, he, and then we get the statement, his, he had a son, Kish had a son, whose name was Saul. And so this is the first introduction of this character, Saul, in the Old Testament. A lot of this book thus far has been building up to him, but we haven't had a character yet. We haven't had a name. We've just kind of been thinking about who is this king, who's going to be the king that the people desire, the king like the nations. And then here we finally get a name, Saul. Saul is going to be this king. And really interesting, Saul's name, because remember names in the Old Testament are significant, means asked of God asked of God, which is quite literally what the people did. They asked God for a king, and so God gave them asked of God. He gave them the king that they asked for. And so his name is very significant as if to say, this is what you wanted. This is the one that you asked for. And that name is actually going to be kind of a, a bitter reminder to the people of Israel as they see what kind of king Saul will work out to be for them. And then you have this detail here that he was a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. So he probably looked a lot like me. Um, <laughs> um, what's really interesting here, in, uh, what's that? A fuller beard? Yeah, he probably did. You're probably right, Ray. Um, yeah. So what's, what's interesting here, in the Old Testament, it's almost always a death sentence to be singled out as being good-looking. Really interesting. You can look at all these different characters as they're introduced throughout the Bible to say, and whenever it says, and she was exceedingly beautiful, then you go, oh no, something terrible is going to happen to her. Or it says about him, he was the most handsome of all. You, you think, oh no, that's, that means it's, a, it's a, a mark on that person that something awful is going to happen to them. And so it's just kind of this interesting theme in the Hebrew literature that you don't want to be good looking. You, you want to be ugly so that God will leave you alone and not curse you and let horrible things happen to you. But it's really interesting because Saul is going to be one of those characters. He's singled out here not only as handsome, but as the most handsome in the whole nation of Israel. And, uh, and that is kind of when you think about what would be the ideal king for these people. They want someone with some charisma. They want someone who would look good leading the people into battle. They want him to, to be able to ride in his chariot and have all the nations go, oh, wow, it's the king of the Israelites. And so it makes sense that the king, like the nations, is going to be the most handsome guy in the country. Uh, and then finally, this really strange little idiom here, from his shoulders upward, he 
was taller than any of the people. And at face value, that sounds like he is a giant, right? Because it sounds like they're saying that from his shoulder to the top of his head is the same as the height of a full-grown person. Well, that's not really what it means. <laughs> what it, this is actually an idiom, and when it's translated straight into English like that, it doesn't make a lot of sense to us. Um, basically what this means, our best guess anyway, is that he was a head taller than anybody else. Um, so yeah, he's not an enormous giant who is you know, a, that much taller than everyone else. He's, uh, he's about a head taller than everyone else. And so he is, he's physically intimidating. Not only is he good looking, but he's a, he's a large guy. He's big. He makes sense that when you're looking for the king, the, the king that's going to be the king like the nations, you want the handsome, tall, intimidating, with good physical stature, that kind of king to be the one who leads you. And so we're introduced to Saul here. This is just kind of the prologue that kind of gives us the introduction. We're moving into a different portion of this whole story that we're looking at. Yeah, Gloria. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it worked out well for him, but yeah. But it, so Saul is going to be the opposite of George Washington in that sense. He's not, yeah. He, he can tell a lie. Yeah. Yeah. Any questions on this section before we move on? This pretty short few verses, but it's important because again, it's a transition in the book. This is a, a big moment in the book because it takes us to a different area of action that's going on here. Questions? Yes, April. Yeah. So is, do you see a reason why it's a man of vision and then later talking about confirming that, that, that their grandfather was a man of vision or their father was a man of vision? You know, I'm not sure. Nothing immediately comes to mind. I think one thing that's possible is that with David, there's going to be a big significance that he uh, comes from. Uh, you know, the tribe that he comes from, and then also the prophecies about the Messiah coming from a specific tribe. So maybe it's just a reminder that, again, this isn't the guy, this isn't God's choice of king because he he doesn't have the right, you know, history or, you know, that kind of thing, or or just to further compare him with David, that is, you know? So, but I'm not totally sure. Yeah. Yeah. Also, though, I would say that um, the tribal heritage is very important for the... um, the people of Israel, and so it could just be they want to make sure that you know where he comes from. Yeah. Other questions? All right. So we've got a, a lot of text to get through today, so I'm going to be moving a little quicker. So um, I will be pausing for questions, so save them up. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, so now moving on into verse 3, verses 3 to 14. We're going to see a wild donkey and seer chase. So here we go. Not seer chin, but seer chase. I just, I, as I was writing that, I had sea urchin <laughs> pop into my mind. Okay. Anyway, verse three. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. And they passed through the land of Benjamin, but they did not find them. 
when they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. Now, uh, so now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, Come, let us go. And, they, and so uh, they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. So pretty large section of text here, but this is the story of how Saul comes to encounter Samuel, how the the chosen king for Israel comes to be in the presence of Samuel, the one whose responsibility it is to anoint the king. And so this is, the, the thing that's underscored in here is the sovereignty of God, that God is the one who's orchestrating all of these things behind the scenes. Uh, and so first, we have the introduction that the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And donkeys were a pretty common um, beast of burden in the, in the agrarian Iron Age Israel, and they were a huge part of their culture. Uh, so much so that actually when you, um, when you look at some art from that time and other parts of uh, the region that depicts people, uh, Semites, people from that region, they're often, and they often include a picture of a donkey. So here's a, a picture of some uh, Egyptian art that depicts uh, a Semitic person there with a donkey. And so that's pretty common that this was when people in the cultures around Israel thought of Israelites or even people from other tribes in that area, they knew that they were people who often, who, you know, used donkeys for a lot of different things. As you can see in this picture that, um, that part of what would help you know who that person is, there's a few different details, right? The first would be um, this guy's uh, beard that he has here. Um, because the Egyptians did not have beards, and if they did, they didn't have beards that went up the side of the face. They had, like, pharaoh-type beards. That was for the rich people. Um, that was just on the chin, kind of a weird style. But that's one thing that tells you that this is a Semite. Um, also, the donkey would be another one. And so... Um, Donkey is very important to their culture, very important animal. And unlike in our culture, they didn't have kind of this negative connotation. You know, a, a donkey, the na- another name for a donkey has become a pretty well-used insult in our <laughs> culture. Um, and also a euphemism for, a, you know, a different anatomical part. And so, but we don't have, they don't have that in, uh, in the Egyptian, Egyptian, in um, Israelite culture. It was, uh, they didn't have a negative connotation. They were actually a, a pretty noble animal. They were a useful animal. It was much more um, important to who they were. And so we aren't told how the donkeys got out 
how Kish's donkeys got out, but we know that this becomes kind of the inciting incident that sends Saul in Samuel's direction. And it's pretty interesting if you remember, Kish is a man of wealth, and mostly wealthy people would have had uh, donkeys. That was a, an animal for more of the wealthy people in the culture. And so when they get out, it really is that his money is on the run. And so it's a pretty, you know, drastic moment. Like, we got to find these things because this is his livelihood. You know, he's got to figure out where the donkeys went. And so he sends his son Saul with um, one of the servants. And that's the meaning of this next phrase. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And so the Hebrew word there for young man has been translated youth. It's been translated lad in some of like the, like the KJV. Sometimes it's lad. Um, and servant is another translation. And so it, it has a pretty wide range of semantic possibility there. Um, but because this same individual is later uh, called Saul's servant, I think the ESV went with the wrong translation here. I think um, the proper translation is he's saying, take one of the servants with you to help you out there. And so they set out, um, and we get kind of a picture in the next verse of kind of this serpentine motion that they're making through uh, the country, crisscrossing back and forth, trying to find the donkeys. Um, it says, he passed through the hill country of Ephraim, passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find him, passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but they did not find them. So a couple interesting things here. Um, first of all, we don't know what these names of Shalisha and Sha'alim, we have no idea where those are. Um, the fact that they're right next to the mention of Ephraim and Benjamin tells us that they're probably not cities. They're probably larger regions because as you can see, Ephraim and Benjamin are kind of these large regions. And so it's possible that they're um, outside over here um, across the Jordan River. Uh, we just don't really know what's being referred to there. But the, the, the places that are mentioned are Ephraim and Benjamin. And so you get this idea that they're passing through different lands. They're searching all over. And what's kind of interesting also is that Benjamin is, is mentioned last, which is weird because Saul is from Benjamin. And so it's, it's almost like they look everywhere but home at first, right? And so, the, and again, you have this weird detail because they're going to end up we know they end up somewhere in this area here. Actually, it's probably more like uh, this area here. And so it's almost like they were not systematically moving through these countries, but just kind of going all over the place, you know, just kind of checking wherever it occurred to them to look. Because again, they're starting in Benjamin, somewhere in here. We're not, we don't get a, a place name mentioned other than the whole tribe and they're going somewhere in parts unknown, then they come into Ephraim, then they go back to Benjamin, and eventually they're going to end up in here somewhere. So they're just kind of moving all around. It's a, it's a wild donkey chase. They're looking all over the place. They have no idea where these things are. Yeah, Ray, you had a hand up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure why they would add those kind of interpretive notes there because, you know, as far as my research says, we don't really have any clue where those places are. Yeah, to the point where sometimes when, when a place name is mentioned and we don't have any 
real idea where it is. We just look at the words and try to determine, are we mistranslating this as a place name? Is it meant to be like the land near the waters or something? And, and even that didn't turn up anything, you know, significant there. So, yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> Some things we just don't know. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. They're looking all over. They got to find those donkeys. They don't know where they are. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, and then we have another place name introduced in the next verse there when they came to the land of Zuf. And guess what? We don't know where that is either. We know where Zif is, but Zuf is something different. And so we have no, no help there. Um, and so they passed through the land of Zuf. And then Saul says to his servant, look, we need to figure out if we should keep looking or if we should go back home. Because at this point, he's starting to get concerned that maybe their, his father is going to be more concerned that something happened to him than that something happened to the donkeys. And so we, we're, we don't have a detail about how long exactly he's been gone, but we know it's long enough that it's possible that the father would have given up on the donkeys and now be concerned about Saul. Um, and so, again, if you remember this trip that they're on, we're talking about a matter of weeks and not days, possibly even months. They're looking all around for this merchandise, basically, that has been lost to them because it's really important to their livelihood. And so um, if all this seems like a lot of work to find a bunch of donkeys, remember that Saul's family is wealthy, that donkeys are expensive animals. Most common people did not have them. You probably heard that detail mentioned around Christmas that when we talk about you know, why the nativity scene is, uh, you know, is totally uh, historically and biblically inaccurate because you got the shepherds there and the, and the wise men at the same time and that didn't happen and you've got you know, all these animals that don't belong in there and one of them is the donkey, right? So this image of you know, we're going to load up the donkey and we're going to go is, is really probably not correct, right? Mary's not riding on a donkey because they're poor. They can't afford it. Yeah, so, so um, donkeys are for rich people. Um, they're important to the to the culture of of the Israelites, but it's mostly the the land owning wealthy people that had the donkeys. And so um, the fact that they had a whole herd of donkeys that went missing is just further indication that Kish and his family were very wealthy people. Um, and so then the servant has an idea. He's, he says to Saul, "Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true." So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Interesting here is that the servant is the one who's speaking with a lot of clarity and a lot of insight. And that's actually not uncommon in the Bible. Sometimes the wisest utterances, the the best advice comes from the most unexpected places. And again, remember that the function of this section of the passage that we're looking at is to demonstrate for us that it's God's invisible hand guiding these events that bring Saul to Samuel. And so it, it further shows that it's God who's behind all of these things, that it's the servant who has kind of this moment of clarity and insight instead of the educated uh, favorite son of the wealthy donkey owner. You know, it's actually the servant who comes up with the idea. And what he says is that there's a man of God in this city. And man of God is a common term for the prophets, for prophets in the Bible. It's not just that he's saying, you know, someone who is a godly man. He, when he says a man of God, he's referring to a seer or a prophet, someone who spoke for God, someone who received oracles and messages from God and made them known to other people. And then it has, um, 
he also states what the Bible said about Samuel several chapters ago, that he was not only a prophet, but he was a prophet with a stellar record. Everything that he said, every message he said he received from God came to pass. And so he had a perfect record. He never had any misfires. He never said something was going to happen and it didn't happen. He always was right. The messages that he received from God were truly from God because every single one of them came true. And so he had a reputation. And as they come into this territory here, and the reason we know that they're in this area is because they're going to see Samuel Samuel had his, remember he had his itinerant ministry between these cities and an additional one um, where we don't exactly know where the location is, but it's somewhere again in this area here, and that's the city of Ramah. And so it says when they came to this city, or when he says um, there's a man in this city, a man of God in this city, that city is Ramah because it's Samuel's hometown and his base of operations, and it's where he built the high place, where he built the altar that was mentioned a few chapters ago. And so that's the idea. They're going to go and ask the prophet where the donkeys are um, and see if, if he can help, because, and the, and the prophet they're talking about is Samuel. So Saul says to his servant, but if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there's no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? And so Saul doesn't want to show up empty-handed. He doesn't want to impose on this man of God. And it just shows uh, this traditional Middle Eastern hospitality practice of bringing a gift with you when you go and impose upon someone, which is actually still pretty common in our culture today, right? That you don't show up, you don't stay at someone's house without offering them a gift or something like that. And so Saul doesn't want to show up empty-handed. And he says, we, you know, they've been on the road so long, they've been looking for the donkeys, they don't have anything left that they could give to this guy. And so the servant has an answer. The servant answers him, here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. And so shekel is now the name for the currency in Israel. A coin is a shekel, and actually it's been the name, just a generic name for a coin for a long time in that culture. But at this time, it's actually the, the name of a weight. And so it's not referring to he's got a portion of a coin. It's referring to he has a portion of, of a, a shekel being the amount of weight of the silver that he has. And the equivalent of a quarter of a shekel of silver is about three grams. So we're talking about nothing, right? We're talking about chump change here. And so it's really interesting that he's like, oh, well, we can't go visit him. We don't have a gift to bring. And he's like, well, I have a few pennies in my pocket. You know, it's like, it's that kind of absurdity just to say, well, we got to bring him something. And I've got, you know, this, this silver that we could bring. Denny, you had a hand up? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, and, and the servant probably is carrying the luggage too. Like he's he's a servant and sherpa. Like he's he's carrying all the stuff while Saul walks around. You know, um, as they're traveling all around looking for the donkeys. Um, and so he might have just had been carrying the purse with the money in it. I don't know, but. Yeah, um, And so, yeah, they, they have this idea they're going to bring this small gift, um, and it shows that they're not really concerned about bringing tribute or trying to impress the man. They just want to, they don't want to show up empty-handed. They want to follow the protocol of the culture at the time. 
And so then you have this weird little note in here in the parentheses, right? And, you know, spoiler alert, it's not actually in parentheses in Hebrew because they don't have parentheses. Um, but it's put in parentheses in our English translations, and maybe it's not in the NIV. I see a confused look on your face, Ray. So maybe that is that why is it not in parentheses there? Yeah. So, um, oh, it is. Yeah, not in, not in your Bible. So um, the reason it's in there is because... This, as far as we can tell, is a little textual note that's in there to help people understand the language that's being used. It's really kind of interesting. So he says, formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God or to make a prayer to ask God um, for advice, he said, come, let us go to the seer. And then they say, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And so you have two different Hebrew words in there. The exact words aren't really important, but the idea here is that is that the, the author is taking pains to make sure that people understand. When I say seer in a moment here, it's the same thing as prophet. It's not something different. If you don't know what that word means, just know it's the word that we used to use to refer to seer. So it's just kind of this interesting little interjection in there. Sometimes you see how the author, whoever they may be, is breaking through to let us know, uh, to make it more clear for the people who are going to be reading it. L- probably little did this person know that today we would be reading this, you know, all these years later, across the world, uh, things that they couldn't possibly understand and that we actually still would benefit from knowing why they're using a different word in there than we might expect them to. And so he says, Saul's response uh, is to say, well said, come let us go. And so they went to the city where the man of God was. And again, likely this is Ramah, Samuel's hometown, his base of operations. And note here, just interesting, that you kind of see one of the virtues of Saul here. And he's a complex character in the, in the Bible. Sometimes we have the tendency to just completely villainize him because he's got a lot going against him. But there are some virtues that are made clear, especially early on in his kingship. And one of them is his humility. Notice here that he is willing to take the advice and to follow the plan of the servant. The servant says, here's an idea. He says, well, we can't do that. He says, here's the solution. He says, okay. We'll do it your way. We'll, we'll try it out. And so this is a future king of Israel who's humble enough to take the advice of one of the people who works for him, right? And so that's one of his, his virtues, maybe one of his few virtues, as we'll see. But still, it's uh, something that is uh, worthy of commendation in the example that he sets there. And so they head off to the city. It says, as they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? So the hill here, as it says, they went up the hill. It just kind of sounds like, you know, Jack and Jill went up the hill, you know. But it's, it's really a mountain, so they're climbing. They're, they're going on a further journey. And remember, they don't have any food or anything left, so they're probably, you know, hobbling into town. But they make it in, and so they get up to the top of the hill to Ramah. They come on in. Um, and remember, the hill country of Ephraim is just mountain after mountain. It is uh, rocky. They're rocky mountains. They're desert mountains. Um, and so he finally makes it up there. They get to and they talk to these young women who are drawing water. And you can understand that if they've just been traveling in these deserts and coming up the mountain, that they're going to go get some water too. And as they stop at the well, they take a moment to ask for advice from the women drawing water. And that's actually a pretty good idea because women who are um, going to this, to this place to perform this traditional job for women, which, by the way, is still today the practice across large swaths of Africa and other places for women to come and draw water from the well for their families, they have the idea that if anybody knows what's going on in the community, it's going to be these women at the well, which is not a bad idea. It's actually pretty insightful of them. So they ask them, 
And this is the answer they give. And this is a really interesting little, little chunk of text here. Look at this. He says, they answered, uh, so the, the question is, the seer here, and they say, he is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So you kind of get this weird little disjointed chunk of text here again. Um, and it really seems like they're hurrying them along. You've got all these, these times that they say, hurry, you must go now. You can go and meet him. Go right away. You will meet him right as soon as you come in there. So it's like they're, they're like, yes, if you go now, you'll go find him. If you move quickly, then you'll be able to, to meet him before he goes up to the high place. Um, and so the short sentence syntax here is clear. In the Hebrew, it's even more difficult to read. Uh, you know, it's been massaged out in English to try to, so that we can actually read it and understand it. But the whole idea here is that they're, hastening them along. They're saying, this, he's, he's in town, but he's about to go up to the high place. If you want to meet him before he goes up, then you need to hurry. And so they send him on their way. Um, and it, in ancient Israel, high places are literally locations at the highest point in an area um, that were designated for, as places of worship. And that is, what's something that's really interesting is that across many cultures, um, you see that the practice of putting the place of worship at the highest point in uh, the land. And so there's maybe a big hill and they put it at the top of that or a big mountain and they put it up there. Sometimes they construct these, these structures in order to make it the highest place. And then actually it's still something that we see even reflected in architecture today that oftentimes uh, more traditional churches will have big steeples, right, that draw your eye upward that are actually sometimes literally points upward to bring your eyes up to direct your gaze upward. And so it's this strange uh, practice that when we think of worship, whether that's worship of the true God or worship of false gods or just kind of this, this proclivity toward worship that happens in people who don't know God, there's always kind of this idea of looking up that we're looking beyond ourselves. We're looking to something beyond the mundane and the regular world of life that our eyes are drawn upward. Ray? Well, actually, the, uh, the high point... Is you, the high place is usually far removed, and it's actually usually at the top of a mountain, so it's not that anybody would have been able to hear them, right? So, oh, sure, yeah. Well, the, yeah, uh, the idea there, again, is, is not that he's up on the mountain and they're all at the ground, but they all come up the mountain with him. And, and again, that is kind of in the same tradition, though, that they're going up to the high place. There's this idea, especially in the culture at that time, that as you get higher up, you're closer to God, right? Um, and so it is kind of this, there's a little bit of a pagan aspect to it. But it also is just this idea of setting aside a sacred space for the worship of God. And for whatever reason, in all of these cultures, it becomes the high point, the high place. Um, and so Samuel had built this altar up at the high place. We have a mention a few uh, chapters ago that as one of his works as prophet, because the ark is in this house of this one guy, it's been, and so it's not currently the place of worship. He builds an altar at the high place as a place of worship, not of false gods as high places often refer to in the Old Testament, but actually of the true God. And the reason that that's okay is that there's no temple yet. 
that, that, uh, that the ark has not yet been brought into its final home where the people of God will come to worship him there. And so high places at this point are not sinful or wicked or departures from God's command. They're actually a necessary thing that God is allowing his people to use to worship him. And so the symbolism, not hard to understand, the high place is high up, and Samuel's going up there to give a sacrifice. We have the detail that he's got people waiting for him, and they can't give the sacrifice until he gets there uh, because he's the prophet, he's the seer, and so he's headed up there, and so Saul and the servant have to go try to catch Samuel before he goes up to the high place. So they went into the city, and as they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Any questions on that section? Yes, Leilani. It's a good question because, you know, there's... um, So the question was, why do they have to hurry? Why can't they just talk to them after the the, um, sacrifice? We don't know why the... How the women knew this, but Samuel knows that Saul is coming. And so we, it's, it is a kind of a weird detail in the text. Um, and it, again, might be to underscore that God is in control and that he's orchestrating all of this. But Samuel knows that Saul is coming, and he knows that he's, he's supposed to meet him before he goes up to the sacrifice, as we're going to see in a moment. Um, that, and that, that'll be explained in the text as we go on here. How the women knew, we don't know. Why they felt that they needed to talk to him before he went up, we don't know either. But yeah, it is interesting, though. Other questions? Oh, yes. Irma. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it could be. They're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah, he is the most handsome man in, in all the land. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, could be. And that might be reflected in the text, in the, the language that they use and why it's all disjointed. And yeah, Other questions? <laughs> all right, let's move on here. So now we'll see, now that the story here shifts to see, you know, meanwhile, this is what's happening in Samuel's world as all of the, as the donkey chase is going on. So it says, now the day before Saul came... The Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, told Samuel, here is the man of whom I spoke to you, he it is who shall restrain my people." Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house. Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? 
Then Samuel took Saul and his young man or his servant and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave you of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, see what was kept is set before you. Eat because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. So first things first, um, oh, sorry, I didn't advance it there if you were reading off the screen, but um, the day before Saul came, Yahweh had revealed to Samuel, and then he tells us what, but here we see how Yahweh, again, is working behind the scenes the whole time, and what's interesting is this is the first mention of God's name in this chapter. And so it's almost as if to say, hey, if you were wondering what was going on with the donkeys and the women and, you know, all of this stuff, it's actually been Yahweh working behind the scenes all this time. Um, And it seems significant that it's taken how many verses? It's taken, uh, you know, 14 verses in this chapter to see the first name of God in a book that it seems like every other verse has the name Yahweh in it. And so um, Saul is working outside of of a knowledge of God in his dealings, but it doesn't mean that God is any less involved in bringing about the events of his life. Whereas Samuel, on the other hand, knows acutely who this God is, who is driving the the action that he is dealing with. And so here's what Yahweh says, uh, what he tells Samuel. Tomorrow about this time, I'll send you a man from the land of Benjamin, And you shall appoint him to be prince over my people. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. So Yahweh told Samuel that uh, the time that he was going to send the heir apparent, uh, this one that he's going to anoint, where he's coming from, from Benjamin, and what to do when he gets there. So he gets this message from Yahweh that's pretty detailed and gives him a lot of information. He also tells Samuel what he plans to do with a king over Israel. He tells him he wants to protect his people and to lead them in battle against their enemies. And then finally, he reminds him that he's doing this at the request of the people since they again had set their minds on ignoring his guidance, which is what we talked about last week. So you have kind of this recap going on here of who this king is, why there's going to be a king, and uh, what kind of king he's going to be. And then, interestingly here, Yahweh tells Samuel to anoint Saul as what? Did you guys catch an interesting detail in text? A prince, yeah. He doesn't tell him to anoint him as king. And so, the word here uh, is nagid, which means prince or ruler or leader. It could be a reference to the elder of a tribe. It could be the reference to a leader in battle. And it's not the word melech, which is the word for king the word that is used anytime you see the word king in in the Old Testament, the word behind it is melech. And so the word choice here is very specific. And it could be here that we're being reminded that Saul is ultimately not Yahweh's choice for king over Israel. His choice is David. His choice is ultimately Christ. But that because of the people's insistence, he's going to still nevertheless give them a ruler. He'll give them a prince, even though they're not really getting the king that they actually desire and want because they circumvented Yahweh's uh, plan and timing for that king. Gloria?
Yeah. 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 Yeah, and you know, maybe the reason for that is that this this passage, and as we actually as we go on, um, even next week, we'll see so much imagery about the uh, the practice of religion, the practice of the Hebrew religion, and so much of that the the New Testament tells us was meant to be a prefigure of who Christ is, and so the whole sacrificial system is to is to demonstrate the need for a blood sacrifice for an atonement, right? The whole um, appointment of a priest is to prefigure Christ who becomes our high priest. So the priest stands before God on behalf of the people and before people on behalf of God, which is the role that Jesus Christ as the God-man perfectly fulfills. And then also this longing for the king who will lead his people into battle and will be this, uh, this powerful presence who everyone can look to and bow down to is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ as well. And so, so much of what we're going to see here, um, it absolutely should remind us of Christ because that's part of the function of the whole of Israel's history is that it's being uh, led toward and it's culminating in this uh, figure, the, the Son of God incarnate, Jesus Christ. And so, it's a, that's a really good observation there. Yeah, Ray? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that could be as well. That, as we saw last week, the uh, Yahweh recognized immediately that the rejection of Samuel was a rejection of himself. That the desire for a king like the nations was a desire for to not have Yahweh as their king, as he was intended to be. So, yeah, definitely. All right. Um, so then when Samuel saw Saul, Yahweh even reinforces it further. He tells him in that moment, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. So not only does Yahweh give Samuel strict instructions ahead of time, he also breaks in in the moment to tell him when the man has arrived, to tell him that he's looking at the right guy. And the word restrain is an odd choice here. The Hebrew word atzar is used most often in the Old Testament to refer uh, to, as a common euphemism for female infertility. So as in God closed up her womb, right? This idea of restrained is to be shut up, is to be closed up, is to be blocked off, that kind of idea. And so we'll we'll talk in a a moment, we're going to come back to that idea when we come to our Bible reading principle, because we're going to talk about the importance of individual words. But uh, just keep that in mind for a moment. The the big question here is, why does Yahweh... um, well, 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 sorry, we'll come back to that. So anyway, um, then Saul approaches Samuel in the gate and said, tell me, where is the house of the seer? And so Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. So notice the progression here. Yahweh comes to Samuel and says, hey, this time tomorrow, I'm going to send you the king that I told you I need you to anoint And then he sees the king, and Yahweh breaks in again and says, Hey, Samuel, remember yesterday when I told you that this was going to happen? It's happening now. 
And then notice what happens here is that Samuel doesn't go up to Saul. Saul comes up to Samuel. Is, are, are we noticing a reluctance in Samuel here to carry out the thing that God commanded of him? Because remember how resistant Samuel was in the first place to Israel's request for a king. And remember his feeling that they were rejecting him directly. Because in a sense, they were. They came to him and said, you're old and your sons don't walk in your ways, so give us someone else to rule over us. Give us a king. And so Samuel is probably still hurt. He's probably still unhappy. And he's reluctantly stepping into what God is commanding him to do. Samuel then invites Saul to join him at the sacrifice and the feast at the high place. And so remember that it's common practice that sacrifices were not just, you know, when we talk about whole burnt offerings, that translation is a good, you know, literal translation of what's going on in the Old Testament. But a whole burnt offering doesn't mean that the whole thing gets completely burnt up, right? That it's reduced to ashes. A whole burnt offering is being cooked on the altar. It's being, you know, burnt in the sense that it's being cooked. And then the people with the priests sit down and eat the offering to God. And so you see, that's a very different image than we normally think of. Because normally we think of a sacrifice as like you're sacrificing this thing. When in reality, a sacrifice is this act of worship where you're going to give something to God, but then you also receive, in a sense, the grace of God as you sit down to eat that thing that you've sacrificed to him. Which totally shifts kind of the image of worship that we might have when we think about it from an Old Testament Testament perspective is that even our sacrifices that we give to God, God uses to pour out grace upon us. And so it's really important theologically that we understand that. But anyway, that's what's happening here is that they're going up to the high place for the sacrifice and the feast. And those two things are one in the same. They're two sides of the same coin here. So Samuel says, come eat with me. And in the morning, I will let you go. And I will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. So a few interesting things. This is a weird and difficult little section here, because I think there's a couple mistranslations going on. Um, First of all, the translation in that first phrase is misleading. In the morning I will let you go, and will tell you all that is on your mind. It sounds like he's saying, come stay at my house after the meal, and then in the morning I will tell you what's been on your mind. In reality, what I think is actually supposed to be happening here is that there's a break. So he says, in the morning I will let you go, period, and I'm going to tell you what's on your mind, as in right now I'm going to tell you what's on your mind. And then he says, as for your donkeys. And then the other detail that I think is a mistranslation is the three days ago because the text doesn't really allow for it to be three days that they're passing through all of this territory, looking all around, running out of food, all of that. Um, and it's, it, it is an interesting textual note there that the word three there is thing that has been different in a lot of different manuscripts. In fact, you might have a translation that has a different number in that slot. Well, that's what I'm saying, is I think that that number is a mistranslation, because you have a lot of manuscript evidence for different um, numbers that are in there. And actually, as the strange thing about First and Second Samuel is that you have a lot of disagreement on specific numbers in these two books, for whatever reason. Um, with these two books, there's a lot of manuscript evidence that kind of fudges the numbers in different places. We've already seen this with the loss in battle that was 
you know, this huge number, it was like 30,000 and 70, or it was just 70, and so it differs in different manuscript traditions. This is another one, um, that it probably isn't three days. And the reality is it doesn't really matter what (laughs) that number is. Um, The point here is that Samuel is telling him the thing that is on his mind, which is where the donkeys are, that they've made their way back home. And so I think there's an interesting translation there. You had something else? Yeah. Right. Yeah, it could be. Um, it, yeah, it's it's odd because it's <laughs> traditionally traditionally the um, Jewish faith has said that this, these books were written by Samuel, which is really weird because Samuel dies about halfway through the first half, you know, through First Samuel. So. But we have the same problem with Moses writing the book of Deuteronomy, you know, is that he dies in that book as well. And so um, we don't really know. It's possible that, yeah, it could have been another individual. It's possible that Samuel wrote the first part of it, and then uh, some of his, you know, people who were working with him carried on the thing after him. It doesn't really matter, because what we do know is that the Holy Spirit superintends the process and that he's the one who's written it ultimately through which whoever the human writer really was. So... All right, so anyway, the separate thought there is that he tells him what's on his mind, which is the donkeys, and that they've made their way home. Uh, He informs Saul that they've been found. And then he has this statement, who, uh, actually question, and for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for your father's house? Again, Samuel, this is a weird thing to say. He doesn't say, hey, you're meant to be the new king of Israel. He has this kind of weird poetic, and who, for whom is what all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you? And your? It's like he still kind of has this reluctance, and like he doesn't want to say the words, you are the chosen king of Israel to this guy. He's, he's kind of moving around all of it, but whatever's going on there, what he's really saying is that he's comparing the value of the donkeys. He's basically saying, you came here looking for donkeys, but what you're going to find is so much greater. What you're going to find is everything that is desirable in this nation because you are to be its king. And Samuel, for what it's worth, understands what he's saying because he answers back, am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the, clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Not clams. <laughs> um, clans. But why then have you spoken to me in this way? So Saul here is dumbstruck. He doesn't see himself as a candidate for king because remember Benjamin was struck with a massacre not too long ago that uh, really just wiped out that tribe. And so he is the least of the tribe uh, or the, the least of the tribes of Israel. And he notes that his clan is the smallest within all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin, which is the smallest of the tribes of all the tribes of Israel. And so here we see God's habit of reversing human expectations. When he chooses a human instrument for his purposes, God often chooses the person that everyone else wouldn't have, ex- have expected, even as he's choosing the king like the nations. It still is someone who in some ways is unexpected as God's choice of this king. And so Saul doesn't get it. Saul is dumbstruck. 
Then Samuel took Saul. He doesn't answer him, but he took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited who were about 30 persons. Samuel is going to have a very cold relationship with Saul. And it's really interesting. This is something we're going to see as we go on and watch this relationship unfold. Samuel is very short with Saul. Samuel is very hesitant to talk to Saul. And so you see here he says, how could it be me? How could I be the king? I'm from this small uh, clan from a small tribe. And Samuel doesn't answer. He just kind of takes him and drags him along to the thing that they were going to. And so you're going to see there's this tension between them because Samuel doesn't want Saul as king. Samuel is bitter about the fact that they have asked for a king, and he knows that this guy is going to be the king who does all the things that he described in the last chapter, that he's going to enslave you, that he's going to take your young men and women, that he's going to build all these things for himself, that he is going to make himself successful and wealthy at your expense. And so Samuel is not warm towards Saul. They have a very tenuous relationship. And so he takes him up to the, into the hall, seats them down in the place of honor at the head of everybody else, including his servant, by the way, that to be the servant of the king actually carries with it certain, uh, certain benefits that he gets to sit in the place of honor. And then Samuel said to the cook, and the cook here would have been one of the priests, not like the chef or anything. He's one of the Levites. He says, bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Samuel. And so uh, Samuel clearly had ahead of time informed one of the Levites, the cook here, and said, save the good portion, save the leg, the portion that traditionally was given as a, as a token of honor, save it because I have a guest coming. And so you see Samuel was working behind the scenes. He was expecting Saul because God told him Saul was going to be coming. And oddly enough, not only was the leg normally given as a thing of honor, it was actually normally given to a priest. So look at Leviticus 7, 31 to 33 here on the screen. The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be for Aaron and his sons. And the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a contribution from the sacrifice of your peace offerings. Whoever among the sons of Aaron offers the blood of the peace offerings and the fat shall have the right thigh for a portion. So Why does Samuel give Saul the portion that was reserved for the priests? I don't know, (laughs) but what it does show is that he's treating him as an equal. That Samuel, the judge, and the priest, the one who has been in charge of God's people Israel, is now sitting Saul down and sort of saying to him, mano a mano, right? He's passing the torch over to him. He's giving authority over to him. That's my best guess, anyway, as to why he would do that. And so it seems like he's making an effort, at least, to treat Saul as his equal. And then finally, Samuel said, See, what was kept is set, uh, is set before you. Eat because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And so Samuel reveals in that moment, I've been expecting you. I set this aside for you until the appointed time, the time that God told him that he was coming, and then he gives him this piece to designate the honor that comes with it. Yeah. You'd think, yeah. I don't know what's going on there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The thigh is pretty meaty. Any butchers in the room who can shed light on why that would be? <laughs> yeah. 
I don't know. It's odd. All right. Let's uh, look at the last few verses here. So this is, this is interesting at the end of the passage here, at the end of this chapter, um, because what we're going to see is, is, again, Samuel is acting very strange, right? Okay, so look at verse 25. When they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. So what's going on here? Samuel is acting strange. That's one of the things I want to show you here. It says, when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. So remember, the city they're going back into is Samuel's hometown, base of operations, Ramah, and he makes a bed for him on the roof. Now, this isn't actually a strange, this isn't one of the strange things that's, that Samuel's doing, because it's common, uh, even still today in Middle Eastern cultures, to host uh, visitors in your house on the roof, that they sleep up there, that you build them a bed up there. In fact, some of the more wealthy homes then and now will build a little apartment up on the roof for visitors, a little guest house. And so that's not the uncommon thing. He just basically treats him as a guest, lets him sleep on his roof. And then it says, at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, up that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. So that seems like a weird way to treat your guest and the anointed king of Israel. It is, right? He's up on the roof. Samuel walks out of his house and yells, up, like a dog. He yells to the king, up, get up, wake up, and on your feet, because I'm going to you know, say goodbye to you now. He's kicking him out. So I'm wake up, get ready, because it's time for you to go. And then they go out into the street. And so it's, again, it's indicative of the way Samuel's going to address him throughout much of the rest of the book. He's brusque. He's direct. He's even unforgiving at times. And so Samuel summons Saul early in the morning, and they go out in the street for a goodbye. And then it says, so basically he says, I'm going to send you on your way. They go out in the street, and then he goes with him to the outskirts of town. This is, again, very strange behavior from Samuel. He's walking with him all the way to the edge of town, and then see what he says here, tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he's passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. So Samuel goes all the way to the outskirts of Ramah, all the way to the city limits, and then tells Saul that he can dismiss his servant and send him home. And so he sends the servant home, and he asks Saul to stay with him so that he can finish the work of anointing him, which is what Yahweh commanded him to do. So you see here that it's like Saul, and Saul is just kind of going along for the ride while Samuel is working out whether he's going to be obedient to what God has called him to. That's really the only thing that I can, that I can see as a possible interpretation of what's going on here. Because he knew he was to anoint Saul, and he hadn't done it yet. And he tells him, I'm going to send you on your way. He wakes him up. They go down to the street. He could have said goodbye to him there and let him go. But he walks with him all the way to the outskirts of the city. And then he stops and says, okay, send your servant home with you. 
and then you stay here with me and I'll make known to you the word of the Lord, which what he's talking about there is the work of, um, of anointing him as king, which is what's going to happen in the next chapter. So Samuel very nearly does not obey what Yahweh has commanded of him. But in the end, he does go through with it and he asks him to stay. And what we'll see in chapter 10 is how he's going to actually carry out the work of not only anointing him, but the coronation of Saul as king. Any questions on the text before we move to the last couple parts here? That's the whole chapter. (laughs) Right, yeah, yeah. It's very interesting. It does, it, that's a good word for it. It seems like he's procrastinating to do it. He's like, I don't. I know this is what I'm supposed to do. I don't want to do it, and yet he. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. Yeah. Are you sure? Are you sure you're sure? Okay, it's your last chance. I'm gonna do it. Yeah, it's like it really is like that. Yeah. Yeah. Any questions? All right, let's look at a Bible reading principle here. I, th- I think there's something interesting in one of the words here. And so I want to talk about um, the specific words of Scripture when we interpret Scripture and how they help us to understand the meaning of what we're reading. So first of all, kind of theologically, we'd say we believe in verbal plenary inspiration. So that's a, those three words are very carefully chosen. And it basically, that doctrine means that God worked in and through the human authors of the Bible in such a way that the exact words he wanted were the words recorded. So God works in and through specific human beings so that what they write down, whether it's on papyrus or it's chiseled in stone or it's oral tradition that's passed down as it was with some of the very first few books of the Bible, like Genesis. So God works through that human instrument to produce the precise, exact words that he wanted in the original manuscripts. And here's the deal. We don't have any original manuscripts for any book of the Old or New Testaments. We don't have a single one. We have nothing that we know Paul or anyone actually sat down and wrote that out, and that's the actual thing that they wrote. And so when we talk about it pertaining to the original manuscripts, that's as if to say we believe that God provided the precise words that he wanted in that moment, and if it was damaged or it was lost along the way, then we're not saying that the words are necessarily then the exact words, which is important in the case of certain numbers, like we just saw. When we see the number three, well, is it three or is it ten or is it, is it days or is it months? That's okay because whatever was written in the original manuscript was the, the uh, inspired word of God. And what we have today is inspired insofar as it attests to the truth of that. Now, we have so much evidence to say that the scripture you hold in your hands is about as accurate as you could possibly expect. We have so much manuscript evidence that agrees on so many things to the point where you actually, as you read your Bible, you will have a little footnote, whether it's a study Bible or not, that tells you some manuscripts say this in the points where we don't know precisely what it's supposed to say. So that's all to say that we believe the words are important because we believe that God gave us the precise words that he intended for us to have. So it's good for us to look at the very words that we read 
in Scripture. So for this reason, when we come across a strange or unexpected word in Scripture, we should ask these kind of questions. What does the word in the original language mean? So we look it up. We say, this is what the English word means, but what is the word that's in the original language that's behind it? What does that mean? Does that help us understand what's being said here? Where else is this word used in the Bible? So looking at other instances where that same word, not the English word necessarily, because it could be a different Hebrew or Greek word behind it, but where is that Hebrew or Greek word used at other points in the Bible? We ask, what does it mean in the other places that it's used? Why did God want this word in this place, and how does a deeper understanding of this word alter my understanding of the passage as a whole? So let's look at an example. 1 Samuel 9, 17. When Samuel saw Saul, actually I'm just going to pull it up. So I'm, I'm using the uh, Blue Letter Bible app here, which is free and uh, has a lot of great resources on it. So there it is, 17 at the top of the screen there. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. So restrain is the interesting word here. Why does he use that instead of lead my people, instead of be king or ruler over my people? He uses this very specific word here. And so we might ask, why did God want this word in this place? Right? And we can use resources to pretty easily get some context here. So using this Blue Letter Bible app here, I can select that verse. And then I'm going to go, you see under study there, it says interlinear slash concordance. This is a very simple, uh, simple tool that will take that verse and outline the original, there are the individual words there in that English column all the way on this side. See the English words then you see Strong's, so that's from Strong's Concordance, which is a very useful tool that maybe you have the huge book <laughs> copy of that. But it gives you the actual number in that book of where you can find the Hebrew or Greek word that's being used there. And then it gives you the root that uh, is transliterated. So on the top there, you have the Hebrew characters. Underneath is the transliteration, which means it's moved into English characters, but it's still the Hebrew word so that you can read it and actually understand what it is. And so basically, you have the translation over here. You've got the word over there, and then you've got the location in that book where you can find the definition of it. But what's great about the technology that we have is that I can scroll down to this. So look... They, they are actually using a different uh, translation than we were using. I'm not sure. Uh, NASB up there. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and so shall rule is the word restrain in the NASB. That's the word that they use for it, which is interesting. Why do they translate it that way? So what we can do... This is going to be abundantly clear and because you can't see what I'm doing. But, right, oh yeah, down here. Well, that's actually in, in Greek, which is interesting. But, um, so you can click on shall rule. Oh, whoops, I clicked on the wrong thing. Okay, hold on. <laughs> it's not a perfect app, but here we go. Going back to verse 17, interlinear concordance. I'm going to scroll down to... <laughs> I'm going to scroll down to shall rule, and I'm going to click on the Strong's reference here. There we go. So it takes me to the, uh, the location here 
in Strong's, the entry for atsar, which is the word that's being used there. It gives me the outline of biblical uses to re- of usage to restrain, retain, close up, shut, withhold, refrain, stay, detain. And then you see uh, cal and nifal are different types of verbs there, so you don't have to worry too much about that. But what you want to go down to is the concordance here, because this is going to give you every instance in the Old Testament where that word is used, and at that is where it's really helpful. So again, you can see the kind of thing I mentioned there before. In Genesis 20:18 is an example. The Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abram's wife. And so closed, closed all the wombs, that word is atzar, restrain. Close, shut up, limit, that kind of thing. Um, let's look for another example here. Um, here's an interesting one, Deuteronomy 32, 36. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. And so I, I'm not actually sure which word it is in there, but what I can do is I can click on there and I can go deeper into it and see which word is being translated there. So all of this just kind of gives you an idea of why is this word the one that's being used there? And when we come back to our, our questions here, um, it can help us to ask questions like this. So when we know that this word has to do with being shut up, being closed, being limited, it could be a reference to the pain that Saul as king is going to bring on the people of Israel that's described in chapter 8. Or it could be a simple image of the king's task, just a a kind of a word picture of what he's to do. He's to restrain. He's a limiting force. He stewards the power of the people. He uh, is a limit. He's a cap on what they're able to do. And so basically, just what I want to show there is just how easy it is to use resources to get behind the words. Even if you don't know the language, you don't really have to, to be able to get a better sense of what's going on there. Just use the resources at your disposal, and you can go deeper in your own personal Bible study that way. Blue Letter Bible, yeah. Yeah, there's a website, and there's also um, apps on the Apple App Store, yeah. Yeah, Denny. Organize. Yeah, is that NLT or yeah? So, yeah, and and so it, that's another example that you know look at other translations of the scripture too and see what different words are used there to help you get a better sense of what it means. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh sure. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the, so the way the process works is that, um, so this is what we call the transmission of Scripture. And uh, in ancient times, they didn't have museums or really good ways of preserving text. And so if they had a, a text that was important, the way they preserved it is they made a bunch of copies of it so that you just had it all over the place so that if some of them were destroyed, you still had it in other places. And so basically what we have now and, and we, what we're continually finding in archaeological digs and stuff like the Dead Sea Scrolls was a discovery of copies of Scripture that over time, more and more scribes, just their job was just to copy down verbatim what was in Scripture. And so what we do, the work that's called textual criticism, is to take all of these different copies of Scripture, or, um, or uh, manuscripts, you could call them, but uh, you just have all of these copies and you compare them. 
You say, where are they different? What are the different words that are, that are missing or that were changed and that are misspelled in these different things? And really what that work shows us is that vast amounts of the Bible, the you know, 99.9% of what we have in Scripture is all in agreement across all of these different textual traditions that we look at. Yeah, and then translations is something different where we actually take the old uh, language and we bring it into our language. So when we talk about translations of the Bible, we're talking about the ESV and the NLT and the NIV and all those fun abbreviations. But yeah, so yeah, but that's a good question. Yeah. All right, other questions? Okay, briefly, I want to give you the, uh, my life application here, which is that God doesn't always call ahead. So Samuel set out looking for donkeys, and he ended up with a kingship, and God didn't tell him his plans ahead of time. It was a surprise to him. On the other hand, Samuel did get warning ahead of time, and he knew God's plan. And so more often in life, we're going to be in Saul's shoes. We think we're pursuing one course We think we're after one thing when God reveals that he has been doing something else behind the scenes all along. And this is why as we plan, we hold things with an open hand. God alone is sovereign and his will will be done ultimately, regardless of what what plans we think we put into action. Does that mean we don't ever plan? Of course not, but as Hebrews says, God, or a man plans and God directs his steps. And so um, what it doesn't say is uh, man plans and God laughs. I don't know where that comes from, but it's not in the Bible. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of funny. Yeah, Um, yeah. So here's the uh, verse from James that is on the same idea. Come now you who say tomorrow or today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So again, for all his faults, Samuel does have a virtue that we see in this passage, in this chapter, which is that he has humility. He's willing to, to allow others to speak and willing to allow to follow them, at least in this point in his life, and, uh, and because of his humility to listen to the voice of his servant, to be open to the possibilities that were put in front of him, he comes into this great encounter with Samuel that actually leads to him being anointed as king over Israel. And through all of that, God is the one who is directing the events that take place there. And so when we dig into our plans and we don't open ourselves to what God allow, we, we are actually taking away the possibility that God is doing something far greater than what we think that we are bringing about in uh, the plans that we make. Any closing thoughts before we have a time of prayer here?